Welcome to episode 85, our companion to the objects to observe in the night sky for the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane, and we are amateur astronomers. That means we love looking up at the nighttime sky, and this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars and seeing what's going on in the celestial universe. So Shane, these are a lot of notes. <laughs> there, there's a, maybe this might be a record for us. <laughs> Could quite be a few pages Could here. Yeah. So what? Yeah. It, there, there's a method to our madness here, though, and that is that as uh, as I was going through, and we've we've made a bit of an ebook, and I think we're going to try to get that up on the actualastronomy.com website, um, free to all. But as I was going and creating that ebook over the holidays. I jotted down the frequently occurring topics and there's a long list of uh, I guess um, words that are frequently referred to. And I thought we should really define those uh, in one location. And so I think our plan is that we will do this podcast. It's going to be a bit dictionary like perhaps, but I want it to have it all in one spot, and then we can put this up as like the companion uh, episode to, to the objects to observe in the nighttime sky. So, for example, if you're wondering about uh, what the zenith is, if we say zenith, or if you're wondering about uh, what magnitude is or what the Bortle scale is, like all these things we refer to frequently, this is sort of the source for all that. How does that sound, Shane? I like it. I am. Um, yeah. Cause we do refer to a lot of uh, things that not everybody knows and uh, yeah, it's nice to have a central location for it. All right. So let's start with some sky measurements. So let's talk about uh, degrees, arc minutes and arc seconds. So um, the arc minute and the arc second really um, the, the background to those is they were denoting uh, the passage of time by Babylonian astronomers. And so that's where they actually originate from. But essentially uh, a degree on the nighttime sky is just one 360th of a turn, but sort of in practical purposes, it's about twice the size of the full moon. And if you hold your fist at an arm's length, that gives you 10 degrees on the nighttime sky. And if you use your index finger, uh, and sort of at arm's length, point it or hold it at the nighttime sky, that is about uh, one degree as well. And then all that an arc minute is, is one sixtieth of a degree. And all that an arc second is, is one sixtieth of an arc minute. So sort of put, uh, to put those in context, the arc second is often best used to describe small astronomical angles, um, you know, for example, like, uh, like the size of a planet, uh, and then sort of for arc minutes and degrees, uh, that's when we're talking about, uh, things like the size of a comet tail or, or something like, uh, like a constellation will be in so many degrees across. We'd say the bowl that big dipper is like eight by five by seven degrees or something like that. Right. 15 degrees across the top. Um, so anyway, so that is degrees, arc minutes. And arc seconds. What yeah. is the straight up point, Shane? What we what all, do we get? What do we call the point directly overhead? We we refer to that as the zenith. So it's a it's an imaginary point right above your your location, wherever you are, um, and it's uh, you know I guess kind of projected across or on an imaginary celestial sphere. Um, so above mm -hmm. means in the vertical direction, uh, so like a plumb line, uh, opposite to the gravity direction at that location, uh, which is, uh, is it nadir or nadir or, yeah, I don't know. So <laughs> the nadir is the, is the counterpoint, right? So if you look straight up, that's the zenith and the nadir, which the nadir, nadir is really less useful because it's just the spot directly below you. So we don't really need to know that that much Can we call that um, also so for example if, oh sorry <laughs> should, should we call no, that go ahead. like your your shoes or your boots <laughs> your shoes yeah basically the nadir is your shoes and the uh the zenith would be like your beanie in that yeah. in that same uh in that same context 
Um, but moving ahead, we're going to try to have to keep this at a reasonably fast pace. There's a lot of these to go through, unfortunately, or fortunately, if you're really into this stuff. Um, one of my favorite things uh, to teach people about, and I think this is really key to amateur astronomy, and that is the meridian. All right. So like, do you know much about the meridian and how the meridian works, Shane? Like it is really important. Um, I know enough to be dangerous. That's about it. That's about it. (laughs) That's about it. So basically the the meridian and and why I I focus so much on this in, in my classes is if you draw a line directly from the zenith to the nadir, and this is an imaginary line, um, that line from your observing location is the point at which the constellations or anything else, planets or anything else in the nighttime sky is going to culminate or reach its highest point. And when you're out observing, um, you know, sort of with some qualification, I'm not going to get into all that, but you typically want to observe things as high as possible in the nighttime sky. And so if you're looking at a planet and maybe it's at opposition, so it's going to rise at sunset and it's going to set at sunrise um it's going to be at its highest point above the horizon at around midnight or so plus or minus depending on uh your daylight savings time and such Uh, but uh at that sort of highest point we say that it's going to be at the meridian and so that's key and i'll tell you why it's key is that even once people have been doing astronomy for, for a few years, sometimes they'll be out and they may be going through a list of objects. And uh, a friend of mine who lives just, just a few houses away from me, who, who does quite a bit of an astronomy uh, set of projects, uh, has got a pretty good 15-inch uh, reflector that I like to look through. Um, he uh, was out, this is, I think, about two or three years after he really got into astronomy, and he was looking for these objects, these messy objects. He was doing his messy list. He's since uh, obtained it. Uh, but those objects were really too far, in my opinion, uh, close to the horizon to give him much of it. He could kind of see them through the 15. So he did, he did observe them. So hats off to him for accomplishing that. Um, but they probably would have been best observed uh, earlier in the year or uh, if you waited a few months and, and then stayed up late at night. Um, and then what can happen when individuals are doing that is that they're kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater because they're, they're chasing down these objects. Now it is skill building, so I'm going to give them that. Um, but you're challenged to, to be looking through the atmosphere and to be finding stuff when it is so low down versus when things, things are nice and high in the nighttime sky and you're really going to get your your best views. So that's really the key to the, uh, to the meridian. So I know Shane, that's something you and I, uh, or you may do just, just automatically at this point, because I, I don't see a looking in the weeds too much when we're out observing. <laughs> no, the only, the only time I think where we are looking in the weeds is to the South when occasionally you'll get some Southern hemisphere stuff that never gets much higher than a few degrees. And, you know, we might try for some right. near impossible observations occasionally, but that's about it. And that's when they're at the meridian. Like that's when mm-hmm. they're at their highest point because they're only going to be just visible maybe on a few nights a year. Yeah. So what is the pole star? I know you're probably actually more familiar with the pole star than I am because you do some astrophotography and the pole star is very important for doing that. Do you want to talk about the pole star very quickly? Yeah, sure. So a pole star is a star that just has a chance alignment with the axis of a rotating astronomical body. Um, So the best example that most people are familiar with would be Polaris. Um, Polaris in the Northern Hemisphere anyway is is the North Star and it appears to never really move in the night sky because it just so happens to be almost in the exact spot as the axis of the Earth. So as the Earth rotates, Polaris doesn't appear to move through the sky. Um, So if you ever want to do like a shot of star trails, you usually point your camera at or near Polaris Um, So it remains basically a dot in the middle, um, and then all of the other stars form circles for your star trails. Now, Polaris is not the brightest star in the nighttime sky. I feel like we have to mention that because it is so important. Um, And and most people, most if you just sort of pulled people on the street that are walking by that may have um, very limited astronomical knowledge, most people are going to have heard of Polaris, but they not they may not realize the significance of Polaris as our pole star uh, and, and, you know, the, um, 
the fact that the whole night sky appears to revolve around it, the whole daytime sky appears to revolve around it. You just can't see it as, as well. Um, but they, they would assume maybe that it is the brightest star in the nighttime sky, but it's not. It's just like a boat. I think we talked about it before. It's like a boat, a second magnitude or just a hair brighter uh, star, but it is so close to the North celestial pole that it doesn't really appear to move appreciably uh, night to night. So moving on, I want to talk very quickly about the ecliptic and the celestial equator. And the reason why I want to talk about these uh, two terms is that they can be confused a little bit and they are important uh, when you're out under the nighttime sky for determining a few things. So I'm going to start with the ecliptic and the ecliptic is simply the plane of Earth's orbit around the sun. And that's really important because where we uh, orbit around the sun determines a lot of what we can see in the nighttime sky. So in the summertime, we see different stars than in the wintertime. And at various times of the year, planets will be visible or not visible. Sometimes we'll see Saturn's rings. Sometimes they'll be edge on to us. And a lot of that is determined by our ecliptical orbit. So from the perspective of an observer on the earth, the sun's movement around the celestial sphere over the course of a year traces out a path along this ecliptic against the background stars. So that's what I mean by this. Now, it can be a little bit confusing because that's just earth's orbit around the sun, this ecliptic plane. That's where we orbit around the sun. That's earth and where it lives. We also have the celestial equator. And this is the great circle. It's basically um, part of that like imaginary sphere that, uh, that Shane referred to earlier. And that is on the same plane as Earth's equator. So basically, it's just like Earth's equator being uh, projected out into space. And it's just a plane of reference based on the equatorial coordinate system. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But what this is, it's just our equator uh, projected into space, but it does make some determining, uh, uh, you know, it does have some determination on things like our uh, equinoxes and, you know, wintertime and summertime, because uh, when the sun is above the celestial equator um, or below the celestial equator, then that is, is going to determine how much, uh, how much daylight uh, that we're actually getting. All right, moving along there to talk more about these celestial coordinates. Sheen, I don't know about you, but one of the big, um, I guess, impediments that I find that, that people who are first coming to amateur astronomy and trying to learn the nighttime sky, one of the most frequent barriers to people learning this is when they see that celestial grid on a star chart. That can be very confusing. Agree? Yeah, especially the ones in magazines when it's like a, you know, a circle of the night sky. Um, mm -hmm. I think that, that throws some people off. Like I've even made up a couple uh, diagrams here um, just for reference while we're talking about this. And even when I'm looking at these, once you start looking at the uh, sort of grid of the celestial sphere overlaid, the boundaries of the constellations with the constellations in them, with the marks like the zenith and the ecliptic and the celestial equator and the paths of it, boy, it looks like a pretty big mess. And uh, I don't think anybody uh, would not be intimidated by this. Even I'm intimidated by this and I've been doing this for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it is a lot to look at and understand what is important. And then even more so, how do you use this to find the object that you want to find? Yeah. So for the most part, and I'm going to say this, this is a bit of a caveat. When people are learning the night sky for the first time, I say, forget about this business of celestial coordinates. Forget about right ascension and declination. Just find your bright stars, find your easy to reference constellations. So right now we have Orion nice and high. It has the bright belt stars. It has Betelgeuse. It has Rigel. Down below and to the left or to the east is Cirrus. Learn these as reference points before you get into the coordinate system. There's like, there's only one person I know that can really look at the nighttime sky and remember all these celestial coordinate points. And that's Mike. He's really the best person I've ever seen. Like I can kind of toss up an object and he can kind of give me a pretty good, uh, you know, 
uh, number uh, of where that that's going to be in the nighttime sky. And I think a lot of people that have been doing this longer than you and I that that uh, used to use those setting circles uh, have come to learn it. But Shane, before I go off too much, uh, I'll, I'll get you to keep me on track. What is now for those that are interested, what is right ascension? So right ascension is the angular distance of a particular point measured eastward along the celestial equator uh, from the sun at the March equinox uh, to the hour circle of the, I don't know what's saying here. <laughs> and then I, I, I think I cut the note off, but what I did is I just, I just circled it. <laughs> I actually put the circle on the chart if you look. And so this line runs from Polaris. It, it runs through Cassiopeia, but it's between Cassiopeia and Cephas. And then it runs uh, just on the eastern side of the Great Square of Pegasus and then past the circlet of Pisces and then right between Cetus and Aquarius. So that's where the zero hour is. So if we were thinking about this in terms of like uh, lines of longitude, this is kind of like our, our Greenwich line. You know, if you're in, in England, mm-hmm, you have that mm-hmm. zero degree. Anyway, that's all it really is. And then that number um, goes up as, as you move away from that um, until you get to uh, sort of that 24 hour point, And then that's it. So what is, what is declination? Uh, declination is the angle measured north or south of the celestial equator, essentially. Um, now, you know, the way I like to use RA and declination is if anybody's ever looked at a list of objects, they'll be, they'll have the RA and the declination associated with them. Um, so if you're ever having a hard time finding the object on your star chart, just use the RA and the declination because those will be on your star chart and, you know, you kind of have a up down line and a left right line and that Mm -hmm. will help you find it on the star chart. And if you, if you just want to know where that sort of zero hour of, uh, of declination is, it runs through the top star in Orion's belt. And no matter where you are, that, that's going to be uh, in about the same spot. And then you can use it to time the stars there. And uh, if you time the stars, I forget what it is, but I think uh, you, you can look up the formula. And, and uh, if, if you divide by something, then that can give you your degrees and uh, arc minutes and arc seconds. So moving on, magnitude. <laughs> this is always sort of one of those questions. Everybody's always like, what is the magnitude of something? So all magnitude is, it's the unit measure of brightness of a celestial object. And they use a variety of different band passes. And Shane, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but you actually have, I forget I, I forget the name of the book, but it's the Longenbuehl and Skiff book. Um, on deep sky objects. Ooh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I think they use like the blue uh, band pass of light. And so it's a little bit off. So maybe something to our eye might appear like 9.8 magnitude. They might list it as 10.3 magnitude. It might be like half a magnitude off or something like that. Uh, but that's why that is. But basically all the magnitude system is, is uh, it's an imprecise systematic determination of objects as determined by the ancient uh, Greek philosopher, uh, early astronomer Hipparchus. And what he did is he just kind of broke the sky into like six magnitudes, starting with the the brightest star going to the faintest stars that he could see. Um, And then almost immediately it was recognized there were some flaws in this because the moon wasn't taken into account, the sun wasn't taken into account. And then if you actually scale them, it turned out that like Cirrus was, you know, a full magnitude brighter than uh, or two magnitudes brighter than first. So they added in like zero magnitude and, and negative one, uh, negative one being, uh, I think, about as bright as, as Cirrus is. So uh, it, it can be a little bit confusing, but really all the magnitude scale is, is just a scale. And the negative numbers are the brightest objects, because that's easy, isn't it? Um, and then the positive numbers um, are, are the fainter objects. So for example, I think the, 
the sun is like negative 27 or something like that. And then the faintest things that they've imaged through the Hubble Space Telescope are like positive 26. So as amateur astronomers, most of the stuff that we're looking at, uh, apart from like the sun and the moon, are going to be things like uh, stars and planets. I think Venus can get as bright as like negative three or almost mm -hmm. four. Yeah. And then uh, the faintest things we can see with our eye are like positive six, maybe positive seven. And then when we're looking through the, the telescopes, uh, typically we're, we're running into a bit of a ceiling around positive uh, 13 or 14 and things after that are going to be really faint, difficult to see even through large instruments. Mm -hmm. You know, and this is kind of a quick hit as we roll through a whole bunch of different terms. Uh, I think we could almost do an episode on magnitude. There's a lot, um, there's a lot there, you know, um, uh, we've even had some listeners uh, send us observation logs about trying to observe objects that have uh, you know, what, what appears to be like a, a bright apparent magnitude number, but they're huge. And that magnitude is spread over a large surface area, which means it's actually quite difficult to see. So magnitude is probably one of the most confusing things, I think, in astronomy, because, yeah. you know, a magnitude six should be a bright enough object to see with your naked eye, but it doesn't always hold truth, depending on some other right. factors about the object. So right. um, I'm just mentioning that to take magnitude with a little bit of, you know, maybe skepticism or critical uh, thinking, because it's not always, it's not always going to tell you what you need to know. Yeah. And I think you might be referring to, we, we, and I often get this question in my classes, um, people will look at, at an object on a star chart and they'll say like uh, M31, for example, um, which is around, I think, fourth magnitude or something like that. Um, it could be even a little bit brighter, but it's so large, it's four degrees across. Um, and a lot of people in my astronomy class will go with binoculars, even from the city, they will find that object, okay? Um, it's, it's fuzzy and smudgy and faint, but they find it successfully. And they're like, yeah, I found it. All right, what else is big and bright? And then they look at M33, um, which is only like, I think a magnitude fainter or something like that, but it's about, I, I forget what it is, but it's face onto us. And just because of the light being spread out, uh, because it is like one or two magnitudes fainter, um, it's basically invisible from the city. And then they kind of, they're like, what am I doing wrong? Because I found M31, no problem. I've seen the Orion Nebula and some other things, but I can't find M33. I'm like, yeah, you need to get to a darker site. And then they kind of look at me skeptically because it, it just doesn't make any sense because it's not that much fainter. And then, you know, uh, soon after I'll, I'll hear they've gone out, they've driven outside of the city for 20 or 30 minutes and they found it right away, um, you know, because they've sort of built up some skills even in the city and then they're enough just, just to get them through and they barely get in there. Whoa, it was very, very faint. Anyway, I don't want to spend too much time on that. You're right. We could do a whole episode on it. Tell me about the Zodiac, Shane. What's your sign? Uh, I'm an Aries, <laughs> but uh, the Zodiac is an area of the sky that extends approximately eight degrees north or south as measured in celestial latitude uh, of the ecliptic. Um, the apparent path of the sun across the celestial sphere over the course of the year. Uh, so the paths of the moon and visible planets are also within the belt of the Zodiac. Yeah. So, so that's know. really all, all that it is. It's just... Um, you know, the, the area that's in and around the ecliptic where the planets live. And uh, in fact, that's why planets uh, can eclipse occult and, uh, and conjunct with one another. So moving on from that, opposition. So this is a key term and it's, it's not really that familiar of a term. People might think they, they've heard it or something like that in terms of uh, astronomical uh, terms, but all opposition is, is that, uh, and typically when we're talking about opposition, it's the planets. So it's when a planet is on the opposite side of the celestial sphere, uh, as observed from a given body like earth. So for example, if we say that Saturn or Jupiter or one of them say Saturn is an opposition, that means it's opposite the earth than the sun in the nighttime sky. So what happens there, uh, and I think I referenced this before, is that the planet is rising at sunset and it's setting at sunrise. And that just makes sense because it's opposite in the sky 
of the sun. And typically this is gonna be the best time to observe the object because it's gonna be highest in the nighttime sky. It's gonna be passing through that meridian point um, you know, during the darkest hours of the night. And uh, yeah, that's gonna make for good observing seasons. And typically just because of the geometry, typically, although not like a hundred percent, but that's typically when the planets are going to be more or less at their closest point. There's sometimes there's a bit of a, of a lag in that just because of the eccentricity of the orbit. Sometimes they can be off by uh, some weeks. Like I think this year when Mars is at opposition, it was like maybe 10 or eight days off of its, uh, of its closest approach to, to the sun or something like that, maybe a few weeks. But typically that's when the planets are around their closest uh, point to one another. But Shane, moving on, uh, we recently had a conjunction. Mm-hmm. What is a conjunction? Yeah, so uh, yeah, most people are familiar with the great conjunction between Saturn and Jupiter uh, on December 21st. Um, but uh, what a conjunction is, is that it occurs when two astronomical objects or spacecraft uh, have either the same right ascension or the same ecliptic longitude, uh, usually as observed from Earth. And then in the night sky, they get very close. Um, as seen from a planet that is superior, if an inferior planet is on the opposite side of the sun, it is in superior conjunction with the sun. An inferior conjunction occurs when the two planets lie in a line on the same side of the sun. In an inferior conjunction, the superior planet is in opposition to the sun as seen from the inferior planet. And I'm not sure there could be a more confusing definition for a term, but there you go. <laughs> yeah. Basically what a conjunction is though, is that when two celestial objects are close together in the nighttime sky um, and like technically they have to be sort of on that same line, but um, sometimes even when they're not quite on that line, we'll say it's like a conjunction. Technically speaking, that's an applause um, as far as definitions go, but basically the conjunction just means that, that they're going to be very close uh, in the nighttime sky, or they can actually be close in the daytime sky too, in terms of like, I think uh, Venus is coming up uh, in, into its uh, conjunction with the sun. And of course you can't see that. Uh, but when planets are in conjunction with the sun, that means they're not visible. And you'll actually see that though, when you're when you're, you might be listening to our podcast and, and I might say, well, Venus is in conjunction with the sun right now. And that just means that basically it's too close to be observed. But if I was saying uh, Venus and Jupiter uh, in the evening sky are in conjunction, you, you can observe that. And that just means that they're very close uh, together in the nighttime sky. But sometimes they're just paired up. So what happens when an object is hidden by another object? What do we call that, Shane? We call that an occultation. Occultation. (laughs) An occulting event. Um, An occulting event. Yeah, it occurs when one object is hidden by another object that passes between it and the observer. Uh, So sometimes we'll get um, the moon occulting a planet or an asteroid. Uh, Those are probably the most common ones that uh, occur. No relation relation to the occult activities. Correct. <laughs> Despite our nocturnal meanderings, um, we we're just looking at the planets covering each other up. <laughs> but and, yeah. and sometimes the moon will even like occult, um, like uh, say the Pleiades or something like that. Uh, you know, it, occasionally there'll be a prominent like deep sky object that you know might be uh, uh, passed by, you know, uh, in the night sky too, which are kind of neat to observe. I used to observe with, uh, with an individual who, who was very, uh, he was a person who was very tall and a, you know, large uh, dimension. And we referred to him as the great occulter because sometimes you'd be observing and you'd sit up next to each other. I remember we were observing on this hill one night and I'm like, man, what's going on? I can't see anything all of a sudden through my gear. And it turned out that he had just sort of, he was setting up his astrophotography equipment, had like stepped to the left. And now he was just like, he would just block so much of your field of view all of a sudden. And he was tall, like he was like six, eight. So he would just be like right there. Typically, like if it was like, even you, I might see around you a bit and say, hey, get out of my wing chain or something. But this guy was was uh, probably had a good seven or eight inches on you, I think even so. Gee. 
It's a, it's All a big right. dude. Yes. So sort of in that same line, greatest Eastern and greatest Western elongation. Uh, these are just a planet's elongation point, And these are just the angular separation between the sun and the planet. So with the earth as the reference point. So when we say they're at their greatest uh, elongation, whether it's Eastern or Western, that just means that they're about as far away as we can see them from the sun. And typically, again, this is going to be around the time uh, when they're best visible. And typically when we say, although I think all the planets have this, but typically uh, we're using greatest Eastern and Western elongation when we're talking about Venus and Mars with the uh, Western elongation being in the morning sky and the Eastern elongation being in the evening skies. When you see that uh, Venus or Mercury are at one of those elongation points, uh, that just means that they're, they're well visible. Very interesting. How about prograde and retrograde orbits? We're often asked about such and such a planet being in retrograde orbit. For those that have been listening for a while, you might remember I was interviewed on the local uh, cable show, sort of like the, the local Wayne's World, um, about uh, Mars being in retrograde. And I think they, they were surprised when I came in and just talked about observing Mars instead of uh, you know, what, it, what it meant for people's love life or whatever. <laughs> right. So, so uh, prograde and retrograde orbits. Uh, so it's the orbital or rotational motion of an object in the direction opposite the rotation of its primary, that is the central object. Uh, so it may also describe other, mos other motions, such as precession or nutation of an object's rotational axis. Uh, so prograde or direction or direct motion is more uh, normal motion in the same direction as the primary rotates. Yeah. Basically all it is, is that if you're, if you're watching a planet going along, uh, you know, as, as far as in relation to the background stars from earth, you'll see it kind of going along about in the same direction. And then uh, just as we overtake it, as the Earth, say, overtakes Mars, it will appear, although it doesn't, it appears to switch direction and go into retrograde as we pass by it, kind of like when you're passing by a car on the highway. And so then once we get a certain distance, but I don't know if you want all the math and physics, I, which I don't understand anyway, but as you kind of pass by it, um, you'll see it kind of resume that forward motion through the stars. Um, and so that's, that's the prograde motion. The retrograde is just when it appears to be moving backwards amongst those stars, but it's just a perceptual thing uh, based on our, uh, based on our orientation and looking out uh, at the planets uh, in relation to, to the background stars from the earth. I think, I think that's all it is. Like, it's funny, like a lot of these things, I think they can be confusing. Like if you just sort of read the definition without mm. the, uh, without that sort of visual aspect and in, in how it looks. Cause I think once you actually see that, that prograde and retrograde for yourself, it, it makes a lot more sense than it, than it does necessarily just to, to try to explain it. And it's a really cool thing to see. Yeah. And the car analogy, like passing a car is, is the perfect uh, example. Uh, you know, it really helps illustrate that. Yeah. Although once I moved to Saskatchewan, I never passed a car again because everybody here drives faster than me. All right, Shane, <laughs> it's not even like a joke. Uh, like I think, I think I, I've, I've left an observing site that was some distance from the city and received a text uh, from you at home when we left at the same time when I was halfway home. So yeah, tell me about, yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> tell me about meteor showers. Um, so meteors are the cosmic leftovers from the creation of the solar system, um, as well as uh, uh, comets that pass through um, uh, the solar system. Uh, if they pass through the same plane as the Earth's orbit, they leave behind some debris. Mm -hmm. um, and this debris is often quite small, uh, smaller than a grain of rice uh, uh, most of the time. Mm -hmm. And um, during a meteor shower, you're seeing these tiny fragments of matter um, enter or attempt to enter the Earth's atmosphere and, and burn up. Um, so during a meteor shower, you will see um, basically what's happening is the Earth is passing through the most dense part of this debris trail. And uh, mm -hmm. you'll see a lot of meteors uh, that particular night. Now you'll see meteors leading up to that uh, apex as well as following it, usually a couple of weeks 
Um, and the, the rate of how many meteors you'll see uh, really varies by the meteor shower um, and then some other factors. Um, but uh, the, there's the Meteor Data Center lists over 900 suspected showers. So these are, are occurring all of the time, essentially. Yeah. Um, and uh, what else can I say here? What's the most um, popular meteor shower that we have each year in the summer? Uh, yeah, that would be the Perseus uh, meteor shower. That's usually in the third week of August, I think. Per Perseids. Uh, or Perseids, yeah. I think yeah, you sorry. dropped out or something. Yeah, Perseid yeah. meteor shower, yeah. Yeah. So, and all, the, all that means is that the radiant point or the point at which all, this, all these uh, meteors appear to, to come from in the nighttime sky comes from the constellation of uh, Perseus. Yeah, there you go. So I mentioned comets, Chris. What uh, what's a comet? Tell us about that. What is what is a comet? Actually, sort of strangely enough, strangely enough, I actually worked for a company that um, worked on the Rosetta mission, which tried to put down on a comet. Um, so I know a little bit about comets because um, we were designing some of the communication uh, aspects of that. I, I wasn't like on the team or anything, folks. Um, I just do some support work for them. Um, or I did, I don't, I don't work there at this time. Um, but I was, I was really proud of that. They actually, I was so proud of it. They like made me a mug and like an unofficial, very, very unofficial member of that team, I think, cause I was so into astronomy. Um, uh, but all the comets are, are these kind of like city sized objects. They, they can actually be, you know, hundreds of meters across or a few kilometers across maybe. Um, so they're small sort of in relation to many other astronomical objects. They're in orbit around the sun. They come from the Oort cloud, which is like this huge sphere that encircles our solar system, which I think, uh, gets a good way of the, of the distance out to like the next stars, like the Alpha Centauri stars. And, uh, what happens is that as, uh, a, a, another planet or a large body or a star is passing by, um, or a collision. Uh, anyway, all these gravitational influences can just knock them in towards the sun. As they get in towards the sun, they're going to off gas, they're going to give off gases and particles. And then those sort of cloud up and around the object and trail out behind them. And then it's when the sun is reflecting off those that that's really what we're seeing. You need a pretty good telescope to actually see those cometary cores, uh, as you know. But uh, anyway, Comets can be long period and short period. Basically long period comets have orbits of over 200 years. Um, and the ones that have 200 years or, or less or 199 years are gonna be periodic comets. Uh, and that's basically all I'm gonna say about comets. Again, that's like a topic we could, uh, we could do a whole episode on. Shane, what is the difference between a waxing and a waning moon? Well, uh, you're referring to the, the shadow of the moon, essentially. So when, when the shadow is progressing towards a new moon, uh, we call those moon phases waning. When the shadow is shrinking and is progressing towards a full moon, we call that phase waxing. So um, do you know how I remember the difference? Uh, well, you tell me and then I'll tell you how I remember. <laughs> just, just like the karate kid, wax yeah. on, wane off. That's go. exactly mine too. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people use that one. Yeah. So, so that is like an easy way to remember when it's waxing, it's kind of, it's like shining on and, and then it's waning. It's, you know, it's like coming, the shine is, is coming off. Anything, anything else to add? Hey, maybe we'll talk very quickly. What's the lunar terminator? I should have put that on. Oh, okay. Yeah. The lunar terminator is the, the it's basically kind of a imaginary line, uh, but it's it's where the shadow or the darkness of the moon transitions to the bright part that's illuminated by the sun. So it's an imaginary line that moves across the moon all of the time. It's very dynamic. Um, and over the course of a night, you can actually, you know, if you observe the moon, you'll and note where it starts when you begin observing. If you observe it for, you know, a few hours, you'll definitely see it move. And it's the best spot uh, for looking at craters. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's where you'll have the most, the most uh, shadow definition. Um, and that contrast really helps bring the craters out and, and allow you to observe all kinds of detail I'm, in them. I'm literally editing our notes as we talk. <laughs> and I'm going to talk a little bit more about shadows. <laughs> so yeah. Jupiter's 
uh, or the Galilean moons around Jupiter, they do these things called shadow transits. Have you, and these are Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. These are, these are the Galilean moons. Shane, have you ever seen a shadow transit? Oh, many. Yeah. Lots of times. Yeah. They're, they're incredible. I love watching them. It's neat to see the little black dot cast from the shadow cast from one of those Galilean moons. And uh, yeah, it, it's neat to watch them travel across the face of Jupiter. Yeah. And, and so what Shane's describing there is just this inky black dot that goes across the surface of the planet. Uh, I looked it up. Most people have reported them. In fact, I've seen them in like the ST80 three-inch telescopes. And I think even my 60 millimeter, I can see them in. So they're, they're very easy to see. And in fact, uh, my cousin, Will, who does the show music, um, he, I, I wasn't even looking for one. I was looking at uh, the moons and he actually just walked up to me and said, hey, I want to take a look through your telescope. I was set up at Christmas and uh, uh, this was like a number of years ago. And he looked in, he was like, hey, what's that black dot? I'm like, that's a shadow. He like picked it up without ever even knowing what a shadow transit was through, uh, through my $80 telescope. So that's how easy they are to see. And all we're seeing is that from our line of sight, I talked about, um, you know, Earth's role in the plane of our solar system and our orbit, um, our, our, uh, our, our ecliptic orbit. Um, anyway, uh, it's, it's that, um, that plane that we're in and Jupiter's plane that makes the moons appear to pass in front of or behind Jupiter. So when they pass behind Jupiter, they're being occulted. And when they pass in front, they're transiting Jupiter. And when we're lined up just right, their shadows, which are always there, the shadows are always being projected into space. But when we're lined up just right, we can actually see them on the cloud tops of Jupiter. And that's really all that we're seeing. And it's really cool, like you said, to see them drift across the, uh, the face of, of that planet. Yeah, for sure. Any kind Shane, of solar system motion is is very cool. Tell us about the rings of Saturn and seeing those. Sure. So the rings of Saturn are visible in in even the smallest of telescopes. Um, you know, at fifteen times, uh, you'll you'll be able to discern kind of that like the ovalness of it and and see the rings. Um, but if you have a, a good 60 millimeter scope and, and decent atmospheric seeing conditions, that's uh, probably more key than the telescope. Yeah. 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 You know, 50 times to 75 times will start to show some structure within those rings and that you can begin to see the Cassini division or the separation of the rings. But mm -hmm. what is interesting about the rings is, uh, they are at angles and, uh, they, they are basically year to year. They'll change a little bit from our perspective on earth. Um, so Saturn uh, has a tilt of 27 degrees. So that means the rings are tilted at an angle of 27 degrees uh, to the more uh, visible rings orbiting above Saturn's equator, making them appear different from year to year, as I mentioned. Um, and then Earth passes through the ring plane about every 13 to 15 years, uh, which is around every half of a Saturnian year. Um, mm -hmm. And when this happens, it's a really neat thing to observe because all you see is like a thin kind of sliver of, of the ring. Like it's just a straight line that goes across at this point in time, you can't see uh, like the Cassini division or anything like that. No. Um, so while it's less impressive, it's still a fascinating observation. Um, and what's interesting about that is the first time that Galileo observed the rings of Saturn, that's how they appeared to him was just this thin line. Um, so the next time that this happens will be uh, actually not too far out in March of uh, 2025. That's right. Yeah, it's coming up. Uh, I remember this has happened a couple times now since since I've been observing. It's it's sort of funny the way that it works because of our angle, the angle of Saturn, the orbits and everything. It happens about every, I think it's like 13 and then 15 years. It's it's offset a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, yeah, it's it's kind of a neat thing to see as, as they get more and more edge on. You can really see that. And then we kind of tip. Now, sometimes um, we can be oriented just right that we really see them edge on. Sometimes it seems almost like they go almost to edge on and then we don't quite, it seems like we don't quite get that, that, uh, that total edge on. I think the one in 2025 is supposed to be pretty good. But I should talk, we talked in the last episode a little bit about finding observing sites. 
And you mm-hmm. asked what I look for. I actually think I forgot to mention this, but we look for sites that are super dark and we use the dark sky finder, which we did talk about in that episode to find dark sites. But there is a, uh, a very loose scale that we use called the Bortle scale. And it's a nine level scale and it measures the nighttime sky's brightness uh, from your location. And so this was created by a guy named John Bortle and he published an article in the 2001 edition of Sky and Telescope. Although... I've been doing astronomy a little bit longer than that. And I feel like it was around longer, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm completely wrong on that. But I think that's when it became really popularized. So the scale ranges from class one. This would be the darkest skies available on the earth. Um, And we're really fortunate because here in Saskatchewan, we have lots of class one skies. Um, And in fact, to get to class two skies, we only have to drive about an hour, hour and a half, something like that. Um, so we're really, really lucky here. The worst uh, skies are going to be class nine skies, which are what you see maybe from the heart of like really big cities like New York and Tokyo and some of these other cities that I've never been to. Um, and it basically gives us some criteria for matching the level of sky brightness. But the, the place where it gets used the most that I see anyway is when people are looking at um, the uh, clear sky clock and they look at the dark sky overlay for the clear sky clock. And it says your skies are a Bortle seven or your skies are a Bortle three or whatever it says. Uh, people I find more and more are actually referring to that, which is, which is kind of cool uh, that they're kind of getting that. So when, when they know that their sky is a level three, which is actually a pretty decent sky. And I say, Oh, well, the sky that, uh, that Shane and I use um, the ones that we try to go to from uh, from our city anyway, are about a two. Um, they go, oh, well, that that would be a noticeable improvement. And yeah, sure, it is. Your skies are really good too. But hey, if you want to come and join us, we're happy to have you join us and come out to the uh, Bortle 2 uh, uh, observing site that, that we're able to use. So anything to add on light pollution in the Bortle? No, no, I, I think it's a good scale to use. Um, the criteria is interesting. And, and I think it, it's valuable to understand the scale and, and to do a little bit of an assessment on the areas or locations that you observe. Um, because, you know, every little bit of extra darkness really does help your, especially your deep sky observing, uh, it really brings out detail and, and it, it really can transform the objects you're looking at. Well, we're on our last set of, I can't believe we got through all this. I was pretty certain that it was going to be a two episode or, but did you notice I, I, I'm finishing with a Z or a Z type thing? Yeah. Yeah. At first I thought alphabetical order, but nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, I kind of group them. I try to group them by, uh, you know, sort of uh, maybe autobiographical. No, uh, just the things that made sense, like the lines in the sky versus events and planets and whatever. Anyway, yep. so take, so take us the, home, Chris. This there is, we. I think you should talk about this one. <laughs> um, you introduced me to the zodiacal light. Um, I, I was aware of the Gegenschein before this, uh, before I met you, but the zodiacal light was uh, sort of a new phenomenon. So take it away, my friend. All right. Thank you. So the zodiacal light or the zodiacal light, however you want to say it, um, it's a big, faint, diffuse triangle white glow and at this time of year well as as we're getting into february february is when it becomes first visible and actually we've marked um i marked the the time periods for the zodiacal light on our on our free ebook that i'm putting up on actualastronomy.com hopefully we can get that up today and basically all that we're seeing here is the scattered sunlight from interplanetary dust and that's what's causing the phenomena. But it really looks like a pyramid or like a triangle coming out of the uh, out of the western sky at this point in time when you're into the sort of late winter and early spring. And it's in the evening, western sky, late winter, early spring. And I find it's actually, it points right up to or very close to the Pleiades. And so that makes for a beautiful marker. Sometimes you'll get some planets in there too. I know we have, uh, I think Jupiter, or not Jupiter, we have Mars and Uranus now that Jupiter's set. Um, but Mars and, and Uranus will will be sort of in that general uh, zone. So you might see it extending out uh, into that area. Um, but it forms like a beautiful triangle. I find, you know, we have to get out 30 or 40 minutes from, from the city, but even looking back towards the city, I can still make this out. It's it's difficult to see the first time. So it's best if you don't have a city uh, towards your West when you're, when you're looking for the first time, if you're looking in the evening sky. Um, 
but it is, it is still possible to see. And I remember people reporting this, um, you know, when I was first getting into astronomy clubs and that sort of thing. So I was like, I got to try to see this thing. And certainly it is, it is visible. Um, and then if you go out into the morning, uh, sky in the late summer, early fall, you're going to see the zodiacal light in the East, not the West. So it's in, in the morning sky and same sort of thing. It forms a pillar though. I, I think I've only seen it a couple times, uh, in the morning sky. I find it a little bit easier to see using the Pleiades as that marker in the evening skies. And here we are, we're coming up to the point. So, uh, the Gegenschein, this is the anti-solar glow or the counter glow is, as it's sometimes called. And this is the same sort of phenomena where the sunlight uh, and interplanetary dust uh, are, are being reflected at the opposite point uh, from the sun. Have you ever seen the Gegenschein, Shane? I don't think so. Um, this one is a, a little more of a kind of a mystery to me. Um, hmm. You know, I, I, I don't know if I have. Um, I've, I've, heard presentations on it about, you know, needing fairly dark skies and, and all of that kind of stuff. But um, I don't know. Have you seen it? Yeah, I, I've seen it once. There was uh, somebody in one of my, one of my first astronomy clubs, actually um, person who was, who was uh, president of the RASC, uh, Mary Lou Whitehorn. And, and uh, I knew and observed with her the odd time. And uh, back when I lived in Nova Scotia, anyway, she, uh, she had us out and we were, I think we were looking at it once from, from our observing site and it's, it's directly overhead. So it's kind of a difficult spot to kind of cast your eyes and you could, you could kind of see it um, definitely did appear like a, like a brighter spot. And then I think the spot, the spot moved different than the background stars or something like, I, I remember it was kind of a strange thing to, to observe, but I think I only did observe it on that night and maybe one other night or something like that. Um, like I said, it's directly overhead into the Zenith area. So it's a little bit more difficult to observe. Um, and so it is just, just a bit of a, a bit of a brightening. So, uh, but I think the, uh, the Gegenschein seems to be more well-known, like you were saying. Um, but I think it's more difficult to see the zodiacal mm -hmm. light, which is the same thing, this interplanetary dust. I think it's pretty easy to see as long as you get to a reasonably dark site, like say a Bortle, uh, three or so. Yeah. yeah and I totally agree. Yeah. yeah. And so if people are looking to, to see that, that's when they can. And if they want to check out uh, sort of the best times to see that, just go to actualastronomy.com and we'll put our objects to observe in the nighttime sky for 2021 up there. People can take a look for themselves. Yeah, for sure. Wow. We got through that. We did it. <laughs> I'm really surprised. That was like uh, our typical time, like 50 minutes. So thanks so much, Shane. Any, did I miss anything? Did we miss anything in this uh, long list of definitions? Well, I don't think so. Um, if we did, I guess that'll have to be part two. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Shane. Really appreciate you, uh, you bearing, bearing with me on, on this, our, our Objects to Observe uh, companion to the yeah. Objects to Observe episode. Yeah, it was good. Thanks, Chris. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>